if you're like me, you're already nodding your head and tapping your feet because that music can only mean one thing and that it's time for another episode of Your Money in 20, the podcast brought to you by your friends at Woodward Financial Advisors. I am Ben Birkin, Certified Financial Planner at Woodward Financial Advisors, joined by Victor Colella, also from Woodward Financial Advisors. Victor, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, that music is just what I needed, a little adrenaline bump on a Friday afternoon as we record this, so. Yeah, ready to talk about that which we've been talking about quite a bit this year. Um, That's right. We, uh, we're calling this the lightning round. It's like the potpourri of a few things that we've gotten from clients, not just once, not just twice, but multiple times. And so if one person asks, it's interesting. If three people ask, then it means that there's like 10 other people that probably have the same question. And I think we gathered enough of them that we said, let's try to attack some of these and broaden our answer so that we don't have to repeat the same thing a hundred times, but so that more people can benefit from the knowledge, right? Well, yeah. And this is a particularly unique lightning round, just given that 2020 has been pretty average year, right, Ben? Uh, I haven't noticed that anything's been going on. I checked out after the murder hornets. I was like, that's done. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, that'll be another podcast about the murder hornets, but that's right. The financial planning implications of murder hornets. (laughs) But yeah, so 2020 has been unique. I don't think I need to tell any of our listeners, but there's been a pandemic. Uh, There's been some social unrest uh, at levels levels that we haven't seen in a while. What else? We've had tax legislation. Uh, We've we've got an election going on. That's sort of an afterthought. I think I've seen a, a commercial about that. Yeah, yeah. And some other things that come out of all that, which are positive maybe, or record low interest rates, depending on who you are. Um, and all of all of this interesting soup of uh, occurrences in 2020 has created, yeah, we, we get questions about some, uh, some things, and I think it'll make sense. I don't think any of them will be a surprise to our listeners, but we thought we'd try and go through some of them, give our take, our thoughts on them, and hopefully you'll walk away with, with a nugget that maybe you didn't know before. Absolutely. So before we jump into it, you know, our standard disclaimer, this podcast and everything that we talk about on here is going to be for informational, educational, and maybe even entertainment purposes only, but it shouldn't be construed as advice. If you have questions about your particular situation, as always, please contact your financial planning, estate planning, or tax planning professional. So with that, Let's reach into the grab bag of topics. All right. Yeah, I'm turning my topic bingo wheel. Yeah, we wasted all of our budget on the song, so we don't actually have any <laughs> special effects for the noise. So what did you pull out? So our first topic is, should I refinance my mortgage? Should I refinance my mortgage? And this one, so interest rates are pretty low. Uh, and, and that's obviously the big the big impetus for this conversation, but also I, I think just based on what we've been seeing, there's been a, a lot of activity in the real start real estate markets outside of the fact that interest rates are low, or maybe as a result of, it's hard to decouple them, but maybe folks staying at home are realizing they don't want to be in this home anymore. Um, so I think it all comes in our conversation. So Ben, should I refinance my mortgage? What do you think? Well, like any great financial planning question, the answer is always, it depends. 
So satisfying. Yeah. So satisfying, right? So what are the things that we would look at? Well, we'd obviously look at prevailing rates. So if you were to go out and grab a mortgage or try to apply for a for mortgage right now, what would you be paying? But if you already have one, we want to make a decision and maybe even a calculation of, is it worth it to go through that whole process to basically get a brand new mortgage? So, you know, without saying this is the make or break thing, if you're trading in a 3% mortgage for a 2.75% mortgage, maybe that's not such a great deal. But if you've been late to the refinancing party and are still carrying a mortgage that's 1% above prevailing rates, that might be a really opportune time to look at it and see, hey, can I save a little bit of money in terms of cash flow or can I save in terms of how much I'm paying in interest over time? So we want to take a look at a bare minimum of the difference between what you currently have and what the current market rate is. Yeah, and I I would just add on top of that. So once you do... The calculation saying, is the difference between interest rates great enough to be worth the effort, really? Then I think the next one is, what are your plans, right? Because if you're thinking about, you know, you're so tired of the inside of your house that you're thinking, we, we want to start looking for a new house in a different place or, or, or something to that effect. Refinances come with closing costs. So anyone who's ever done this knows that it's it's not free. There's a price, and that price tag is in the form of closing costs. And for I'm just going to pull a number that is probably going to be close for uh, you know a, a mortgage, a, not a not a huge jumbo mortgage, which we'll talk about in a moment. But let's say it's a few thousand dollars, just to pick a number off the top of our head. There's going to be a payback period where the you know the lower interest rate is helping you with a lower payment, but it'll take some time to get your money back in terms of the closing costs. So along those lines, if you're going to move next year, maybe your payback period is two years and you need to just, you know, maybe wait on the refinance until you know what you're going to be doing in terms of moving or selling your house, buying a new one, whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes too, people will see that, you know, their closing costs are, either wrapped up into the balance of your mortgage or that you're quoted a no closing cost mortgage. Closing costs always exist. Where they're manifested is different in terms of it's just an outright upfront cash payment or if it's an increase in the balance of your loan or if it's resulting in a slightly higher interest rate. They're always there, right? So you got to factor that in somehow. Um, But I like your point too. How long are you going to keep the mortgage? How far are you in your existing mortgage, right? If you only have five more years to go, it probably doesn't make any sense to refinance because when you refinance, you're taking on a brand new mortgage, right? It is a brand new 15 or 30 year, or, you know, we'll talk about this briefly in a minute, but there are more than just 15 and 30 year mortgages. But if you're close to the end, it probably doesn't make a whole bunch of sense to refinance because at that point, you're almost always paying more principal than interest anyway. So that's one of the other things. Yeah. You mentioned this conventional versus jumbo mortgage. Talk a little bit about that. All mortgages aren't created equal. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. So jumbo mortgages, as you may be able to tell from the name, are big mortgages. And and, and the cutoff number, what has it been? Is it it's it's, it's about five hundred and ten thousand in most states. Certain states have higher limits just because real estate is more expensive in some states. But for most people listening to this, about five hundred and ten thousand, I think, is the limit. Yeah, and and jumbo mortgages are more common in certain geographical areas, just because of. I mean, you take California or New York City; most mortgages are going to be jumbo. 
just by nature of the real estate prices. But if you have a jumbo mortgage, you may or may not be able to refinance right now. So we have uh, some clients that will help with refinance. Uh, so refinances on their mortgages. And we've had a, a real tough time finding institutions that are doing refinances on jumbo mortgages. And there's a variety of reasons that I'm sure they have for that. But just make before you spend too much time um, thinking about it, maybe make sure that it's an option. Or or do you have an option to pay down your mortgage to under the jumbo threshold and then refinance? So that it may be a little bit more complicated than just a, a simple refinance like we were talking about before. Right. And so, you know, without getting into some of the other details there, because again, we're trying to trying to adhere to the lightning round, the quick answer to this question, not only is it depends, but you have to do the math, right? How long are you going to stay? What's the opportunity cost for paying it down? All sorts of things. So is there an opportunity? Probably, especially if you haven't refinanced in the last five years, but is, is it a slam dunk? Maybe, maybe not. There's math to be done. Yeah. Again, and mortgage rates have been low for a long time. It's low interest rates are not new. So um, yeah, we'll do the math and it's not calculus. Uh, it just requires a little bit of, uh, of looking. All right. Number two, number two, reaching into the grab bag. Charitable. Uh, w- this year's different from a charitable giving standpoint. I've heard from taxes because there is the cares act. And there before that, there was a couple other tax legislations in the last couple of years. What's different with charitable giving this year? Great question. So the first one, you mentioned the CARES Act. The CARES Act introduced a brand new charitable deduction. It's worth $300. So it's a $300 deduction and technically what's called an above the line deduction, which means it happens before you get to your adjusted gross income. It's got to be all cash, has to go directly to a public charity. So you can't donate appreciated securities. And the only way you get to use it is if you don't itemize your deductions. So if you're claiming the standard deduction, meaning the things that usually go into itemized deductions, medical expenses, charitable contributions, mortgage, all that, if that doesn't equal or exceed your the standard deduction threshold, uh, then you might be eligible for this. But if you are itemizing, this is a no-go. It's not huge, but it's something, right? So that's the one that came about. Um, I think one of the other ones that's a little bit lesser known, but potentially appealing for certain circumstances is that um, most folks don't always know you're not always able to get a dollar for dollar deduction when you donate to charity. Yep. Most people give in low enough amounts where this isn't an issue, but uh, in many years, there's actually a limit based on your adjusted gross income of how much of a charitable deduction you're able to take in any one year. And there are technicalities, you know, it depends on whether you're gifting cash or appreciated securities. So, you know, there's some different thresholds, but one of the very interesting ones is that this year, the AGI limit for gifting cash directly to a public charity, so not to a donor advised fund, but directly to a public charity, the cap has gone up from what was 60% of your adjusted gross income to 100% of your adjusted gross income. So if you have an adjusted gross income of $100,000, you can effectively take as a charitable deduction $100,000 if you donate all cash. That's a lot of cash. Yeah. Well, you're giving it away still, but you may just get a few dollars more back on taxes. So I I just want to underline 
the first deduction is if you're taking the standard deduction, like so many more people are, just save your receipts this year if you've given $300. That's the takeaway for the first one. The second one only applies if you're itemizing your deduction. So it depends on how your situation looks, which of those will apply or potentially apply. So save your receipts either way uh, as you're giving to charity this year. Okay. That's good. That's good. All right. Back to the bag. Next. Normally we linger so much longer. The lightning round doesn't come natural to us, Ben. Um, I know, but you just figure like if we speak too long, you're going to be struck by lightning. <laughs> that's what I'm, that's what I'm taking with me. In that case, I'm working from home all the time, Ben. Uh, you too. You yeah. too. Can I deduct my expenses from, you know, I'm working from home all the time. Can I deduct that on my tax return? It sounds like you're referring to the always popular home office deduction. Is that is that what you're getting at? You've created a home office. You've heard about this. You've seen movies where people want to claim every last deduction. Yep. Am I am I on the right track? I believe so. Well, hate to burst your bubble because the answer is probably not. Uh, if you are a W-2 employee, which many of us are, uh, even though you might be working from home, the previous rule that allowed you to take deductions if your employer required you to work from home, uh, that's gone, right? That was part of the the legislation that ushered in the new tax rates that we have starting in 2018. So the home office deduction for W-2 employees is gone, as is the deduction for unreimbursed business expenses. So that's all, that's, that's just not a thing for most W-2 employees. But I, I'll say, I'll qualify this, that there are probably, there are two main reasons that I would ask you to pause and maybe talk to your CPA about this is one, if you're self-employed, so non-W-2 employee, like Ben said. So if you're filing a Schedule C on your tax return, then this might, it, it's possible that there's a deduction that applies to you. The second situation would be if you're a business owner. And we're not going to go into detail here, but if you're a business owner and your employees are working from home and you're maybe reimbursing them for some expenses or whatever the case may be, there may be an opportunity there as well. So talk to your CPA if you're a business owner, because the rules are different than individuals. But for most W-2 employees who find themselves in their closet uh, and or guest bedroom, and Ben in my case, probably not. Yeah. I'd love to claim a deduction for this small sliver of space in my guest room closet, but uh, it's not to be. It's not to be. And that's okay. All right. Uh, Rev the machine back up. All right. So this is an election year. Get out. Should we be doing anything with our investments differently in this election year? Do we want to make this one simple? Yeah. The answer is no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the answer is no, but it depends. <laughs> there we go. Right. It depends on your situation, but odds are no. Now, I will I will say in the show notes, we're going to link to, now we wrote a blog post recently about this that actually went and looked at some of the data behind why, how we got to the simple answer of probably not. Uh, so we'll put that in the show notes. But so, so Ben, it, it's an election year. Things have to be, and, oh, and by the way, there's also been a pandemic and a few other things going on. Are you sure I shouldn't do anything differently? Give me some. 
Why? Well, I'm not sure about the color of my shoes. So, you know, I, I don't know if I can really answer that well, but I can look back at history and say, does history give me any sort of guidance in terms of our election years different from other years? Uh, the answer is, uh, on average, not really. Um, what about the year after election years? Are they any different than just an average year? Again, the answer is not really. Um, that doesn't mean the future is going to look like the past, but it's a, as good of a guideline as we've got. Yeah. And I also add that there, there are a lot of folks who have run the numbers and the averages for an election year and the year after an election, they are different. But when you really look at it, the sample size is small. So this, mm-hmm. this there have only been you know, divided by four, can carry the two. There haven't been that many elections since market data has been kept well. So there is no predictive power about it's an election year, so we should shift to more stocks or more bonds or whatever the case may be. There's just no predictive power in that respect. So and we so we certainly can't guess uh, is this going to behave the same way as it did last time. Yeah, although you know you say that, and again, these are all predictions. Absence of predictions. This is just history. Average return of the S and P five hundred index in election year is about eleven point three percent. That's actually above average, right? The average return in the market is about ten percent. So, if anything, um, well, I'm not even going to go there. Yeah, just say uh, history suggests just because it's an election year, probably not necessarily a cause for a change in strategy. But even longer term, right? Do we care who's in office? I mean, we might care po- politics wise, but do your investments, at least based on history, care if a D or an R wins the presidency? Historically, no. Uh, the data points to it doesn't matter from a market standpoint who's in office. The, it's going up and to the right, uh, which has been the trend over the long term, which is why we're all doing this. So I, I will. I want to do a quick caveat before we do maybe our last lightning item is that markets have gone down and then back up again this year. There's been a lot going on. If you did exit the market for some reason, I want to refer you to our last, I was at our last podcast about dollar cost averaging versus lump sum. Do I dip my toe in or do I dive back into the market? It's important to be invested. No matter what's going on this year, it's important to have your, uh, you know, both feet in the market. So get back in however you have to do it. And we'll refer you to that other episode as well. All right. One more. This will be a quick one. Super quick. Yep. My income has changed this year because I got furloughed or laid off or whatever the case may be. Should I be doing something different this year from a tax planning standpoint? Possibly. Um, You know, I think for more detail on this, folks might want to check out episode six, which was our reviewing tax returns, life in the tax lane. But, you know, big picture, whenever anybody's income changes, if we're thinking about planning opportunities, might be if your income's lower, might be an interesting time to do a Roth conversion. Um, It might be a time to harvest capital gains if you might be able to do it at a lower rate than you otherwise would. You might want to wait on taking certain deductions if your income might be higher next year as opposed to this year because those deductions might be worth more. So again, there's more meat to that question in episode six, but there are some things that you might consider doing if, you're, if your income is down. So with that said, Victor, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're almost up against our self-imposed 20-minute deadline. So for folks who have enjoyed this, uh, remember, you can check out more of our podcasts at Apple Podcasts or just find us at woodwardadvisors.com. 
you can find us on Twitter at WFA underscore Ben at WFA underscore Victor. You can send us an email or just let us know how we're doing. Victor, on behalf of everybody, thank you for participating in the lightning round. Yep. Hope it helped.